Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Neil Donald Walsh. He's the author of 27 books on practical spirituality, including the renowned Conversation with God series, which have sold millions of copies worldwide. His books have been translated into 35 languages, and seven have made it to the New York Times bestseller list. Neil's internet television program, Talk to Neil, allows his readers to interact with him regularly in person at www.cwg.tv. He lives with his wife, the American poet M. Clare, in Ashland, Oregon, not very far from us, and today we're going to talk about his latest book, The Only Thing That Matters. Welcome, Neil. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. You know, your latest books focus on conversations with humanity. How do they differ from your conversations with God books? Well, I wanted to take the information that I received in conversations with God and talk to people about it in just a regular one-person-to-one-person way. The conversations with God uh, have been wonderful to receive and to share but some people might have a difficult time with the concept, with the idea that we're actually having a conversation with God. Other people are simply intimidated by the, by the uh, context within which they're reading the material. And furthermore, I wanted to have an opportunity to bring other people into the conversation. So what I've done in the Conversations with Humanity series is I've taken a look back at all the comments that I have received in lectures, workshops, personal appearances through the years, and I've dropped those comments into the books that I am now producing so that the voice, if you please, of people everywhere could be heard and their questions, the comments that they have made, uh, could be answered. So what I've done is I've produced a series of books. I'm in the midst of doing that now where the reader, uh, him or herself, actually has a voice. And I respond to that voice. I respond to what I've been hearing through the years from people everywhere. I have a great memory for those kinds of comments because they're usually pretty important to me. And so I've given my response to those comments. I see. Well, of course, we're all struggling with our own notions of spirituality and God. And much as I would like to cut to the chase and find out, as your uh, title suggests, what the only thing that matters is, perhaps we should talk about your notion of God. I is it very different from the, the sort of demanding, vindictive God of the Bible? And why are you so confident that the Bible is wrong? Well, I don't think the Bible is wrong. Uh, I wouldn't use the word wrong. I would simply use the word incomplete. Uh -huh. I think that when we have incomplete information about something, it looks like there's something wrong uh, in what we're seeing. But in fact, uh, it's like looking into a, um, you know, a carnival glass mirror. It, it's just distorted. You're really seeing the image, but it's simply distorted. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that the Bible is wrong, but I do think that some of the information in the Bible uh, has been distorted through a lack of understanding or, or because we have not really received the information in its complete or considered it in its most complete form. Mm -hmm. So I think, that, I think that the 
challenge with the world's religions today is that they simply do not have the whole story. And and I was, you know, running around the world asking this question now for years, is it possible that there's something we don't fully understand here about God and about life, the understanding of which could change everything? See, here's what I noticed. Well, I noticed that in spite of all the teaching of all the world's religions through all the centuries and millennia, nothing has changed. Very little has changed. Things have modernized. That is, we have technologies today we didn't have before. We have communications abilities we didn't have before. But the basic conditions of the human experience have not changed at all. We still have the seven deadly virtues, so to speak, you know, vice, avarice, greed, uh, violence, for that matter, killing even more than ever before, and so forth. So with all of our advancement technologically and in medical science and in, in uh, all of the areas of life, except spirituality, we find that we are still confronting the same conditions within the human experience that we've confronted from the beginning of time. And I think that is because we simply do not have all the information at mm -hmm. our fingertips, all the information about God and about life. Now, there's a reason for that. I hate to just go on and on and on here. You asked a simple question, but let me just close with this. The reason that we don't have all the information is not that it's not available. It has been made available through the centuries and through the decades, uh, through many teachers and many messengers. So the, the problem is not lack of availability of all the information. It's lack of believability on our part. That is, we have heard now from messenger after messenger. We simply haven't believed it for the strangest reason. It's too good to be true. <laughs> okay, so how do you define God or divinity? Well, I don't define God because it's impossible to define God. I define what God is not. People ask me, what is God? And I say, well, you know, the, the question is so huge that even if I could answer it, and I'm not sure that I can, but even if I could, it would take probably five million years to give you the total answer because that's how huge God is and maybe, maybe even bigger than that. But ask me a, a different question. What is God not? So the person in the audience says, okay, Neil, then what is God not? What's, what's not God? And I say, nothing mm -hmm. see there's nothing that is not god so god is the sum total of all there is all there ever was and all there ever will be the all in all the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end interestingly enough that is precisely how god is defined by most of the world's great religions using in fact the same language god is the all in all the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end the up and the down of it, the left and the right of it, the here and the there of it, before and the after of it, male and female, created he them. So God is all that ever was, is now, and all that ever will be. I, one could probably summarize it in a single word, life. Conversations with God tells us that God is life itself expressed. And so we find that the words life and God are interchangeable in most sentences, in most languages. So, of course, the implication there is that we are just as much a part of God as our notions of God. So God is not only outside of us, God permeates us. Well, God wouldn't be all that is if God didn't permeate us. If God was all that is in the universe except us, that would make us really exclusive real estate. <laughs> Indeed. Now, um, 
I noticed that your book was really a kind of example of spiral dynamics, which with each idea being developed from the preceding one. Um, and, you know, it's kind of tempting to go dashing ahead and find out what really matters in life. But you really build a foundation through the book. Now, with that in mind, where would you have us start? At the beginning, the first sentence in the book, or at least the first paragraph, says 98% of the world's people are spending 98% of their time on things that don't matter. So I would invite people who are really interested in the topic to take a look at the very beginning and stop right there. I mean, read the first paragraph, close the book, put it aside, maybe contemplate or get out a, a notebook or a piece of paper and write down all the things that I've been thinking, doing, and saying today that in the end don't really matter. <clears throat> and by the way, we don't even have to know what does matter to know what doesn't matter. And we, we, a person might say, well, I'm not really clear, clear what does really matter. What's the book trying to say? But I would say to people, wait a minute, actually, you don't even need to know that. Most of us intuitively understand, at the very least, that what we are doing when it doesn't matter, doesn't matter. That is, most of us are pretty clear about the things in our life that don't really matter. It's not a question of lack of clarity. It's a question of lack of will that do the things that don't matter, even though we um, don't really want to, We've almost by force of habit. So the place to start would be to take a just take a look at what are the things that I'm doing in my life that don't really matter. And what would life be like if I eliminated those things from my daily experience? Mm. We'd find, among other things, we have a great deal more time and a great deal more energy and therefore a great deal more of an opportunity to do the things that really do matter. It's almost like a declaration of, of independence from being tied to all the things that uh, demand our time that really don't add to our well-being or to the world's well-being, I suppose. I like the way you put that. It would be a declaration of independence from our cultural story, a story that tells us that life is about get the guy, get the girl, get the car, get the job, get the house, get the office in the corner, get the kids, get the bigger house, get the bigger job, get the bigger office on the top floor, get the better car, get the grandkids, <laughs> get the retirement watch, get the sickness, and get the heck out. <laughs> and, and, and that's how most people live their lives, according to the cultural story that we've been given. And we believe that story. We, we think that's how it is. We also believe the story that we've been told, if we believe in God at all, about God. Now, if you don't believe in God, then we're, we're free from that story. But if we believe in God, then we necessarily must believe in a God, at least most of us do, that, that emerges from the cultural story of our own particular faith tradition or religion. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, Matt Lauer on the Today Show a few years ago asked me, Neil, you claim to have spoken to God. What is God's message to the world? He said, we have just about 30 seconds. Could you give, give it to us in a couple of paragraphs? I said, well, I, I can actually give you the message in five words. And Matt said, really? Well, okay, well, then, ladies and gentlemen, from Neil Donald Walsh, God's message to the world in five words. You've got me all wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You say that everything in life is physical, including your soul. What do you mean by that? 
I mean that everything in life is physical, including your own soul. I mean exactly what I said. I mean that all things are physical, and just because they're invisible does not mean that they're not physical. Sound is invisible, as you can't see it unless you're measuring it with a very sensitive measuring device, but generally speaking, you walk into a room, you can't see sound, but you can hear it. And it is very, very physical, for sure, as is true of uh, light. You can't see light. You can see the source of light, but when you're looking into a room that's lit from above, you can't see the light. You can only see the things that light are bouncing off of, but you can't see the light itself until you hold something up for it to bounce off of. Hold up a white sheet of paper, and you'll see the paper reflecting the light, but you can't see the light. Yet light is very, very physical. If you want to test that out, well, maybe you shouldn't do it, but imagine yourself putting your hand into a microwave. Mm-hmm. It's just sending you, you know, but do not do it. <laughs> but, you, you, but I can tell you that, that, that what's going on in that microwave is very physical. So because a thing is not visible does not mean that it's not physical. In fact, all energies are physical. There's no energy in the universe that's not physical, but there are many, many energies that are not visible. And we've confused visible and physical. Indeed. God is physical. In fact, God is the ultimate physicality. God is the physicality of everything, both seen and unseen. In the universe, both the known universe and the unknown universe, and by the way, physicists are now intriguing us with uh, stories and possibilities of the fact that there may be more than one universe. We may, we may, in fact, if you can imagine this, be living in a universe of universes that there may be as many universes as one could possibly conceivably imagine, which is extraordinary when you consider the size of the present universe that we think of as the only universe. Even that universe is unimaginably huge, but wouldn't it be interesting if even that universe were nothing but a single cell in the body of God? Mm. Now, the, the physicality of the soul was part of your description of the tripartite quality of the totality of us, the body, mind, and spirit, or soul. How do those parts interrelate? Well, I I think that um, we've been told, even by traditional religion, that we are, in fact, three-part beings. I think religion calls it body, mind, and spirit. And traditional religion, intriguingly, describes God in precisely the same way. The, the Holy Trinity, at least some religions do, the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now, not all religions ascribe to that uh, concept. In fact, some religions absolutely uh, step away from and reject the notion of a three-part or three-in-one God. Nevertheless, we find that the, the whole of the universe is divided essentially into three parts. Every, everything is a triad. All of, all of life is a triad. We have here, there, and the space in between. Yesterday, tomorrow, and today. And likewise, all things are divided into three aspects. We, we see this very clearly upon close examination. So now the relationship between the three is that they are three expressions of the single energy. What I, what I think of it as is uh, a white light. <clears throat> Excuse me, a white light that might be passed through a prism that might be focused through a prism, and we picture it going through the prism as a single white light, but coming out the other side as three separate colors, and perhaps red, blue, and green, 
And so we see the three colors uh, and we think of them as separate individual units of light or color, but in fact they are simply the same single unit divided into three expressions, if you will. So the relationship between the soul, the body, and the mind are, or is rather, that the, the soul, body, and mind are expressions, differing expressions of a single energy that we call the essence of life itself. I could even put it this way, that they are single expressions of divinity or single expressions of God. So in my understanding, your soul, as well as your body and your mind, are individuated expressions of the single and only source that there is. Now, you say that only the soul has an agenda. What do you mean by that, and how do we discover what it is for us? The body and the mind are, uh, to use uh, a simple uh, languaging, the servants of the soul in the sense that they are mechanisms, tools, <clears throat> tools that the soul uses uh, to complete and to meet its particular agenda. The, the body is not who you are, it's simply something that you have. It's energy, actually, formulated and vibrating at a particular rate and of speed, at a particular frequency such as to create the illusion of uh, solidity, much as the blades of a fan can create the illusion of uh, solidity, uh, or the uh, spokes of a bicycle can create the illusion uh, that something is solid. But if you want to test that, you put, your, put, a, put a, a playing card in the spokes of a bicycle and you'll hear it making a great deal of noise and you'll find out very quickly that the, the, the spokes of a bicycle, that wheel is not solid, but simply made up of disparate parts, separate elements that are vibrating and moving around, uh, in this case rotating so rapidly that there is no place that they are not for more than a nanosecond. So when there is no place that something is not for more than a nanosecond, it looks like it's there all the time. Of course, it's not there all the time. Put your hand inside of a fan and you'll find out very quickly that the fan blade is not there all the time but it appears to be because it is moving so quickly that there are only nanoseconds between when it's here and when it's there. So it looks like it's always there. Mm -hmm. This is basically a, 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 just a simple explanation of the human body. It looks like it's always here, but it, because, and not just the human body, but everything physical, the, the planet itself, everything that's physical, is simply the elements and the essence of life's energy moving so rapidly, vibrating with insane speed relative to its size, that it looks as if everything is exactly where it is all the time, but, but it's not. Uh, mm -hmm. The wall is no more solid than the than the uh, the circle of a fan. But <laughs> you can't put your hand through the wall because it is going so rapidly that there is never a place where the wall's minutest particles are not. And so it creates the illusion of solidity. That's true about your body as well. The mind is a energy an energy field that likewise is vibrating even more rapidly uh, than the body and it is a a, a, a computer if you please it, it has as as, uh, as our scientists tell us it's the most magnificent computer ever devised such as to make even the fastest computer uh, primitive by comparison and these are two devices that are used by the soul 
which is the only aspect of us that has an actual agenda. And the soul's agenda is God's agenda because the soul is God, individuated in, as, and through us. Mm-hmm. So the soul is, if I could put it this way, God's representative in us. It's a strange way to put it, but it just creates a picture phrase that we can kind of get a, get an idea about what that is. And so God's agenda is the soul's agenda. The soul's agenda is God's agenda. And that agenda is to express and experience itself. That is, God wishes to know itself mm-hmm. in its own experience and has divided itself into a billion, gazillion individuated parts which we call in our language its souls its soul body and mind triumvirates the individual expressions of God through which that which is God is expressing and thus being experienced by the way at various levels of consciousness that is the human being is an expression of God functioning at a higher level of consciousness than a daffodil Although a daffodil is equally beautiful as a human being, but it does not have all of the abilities that the human being has, including the ability to self-reflect, or what we call have self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. That is, it's not aware of itself. Neither are certain animals aware of themselves. You can put a dog in front of a mirror, and the dog will bark at itself, because it does not know that the reflection it's seeing in the mirror is not another dog. It thinks that it is another dog, because it does not recognize. That is, it does not recognize. That is, it does not know itself again, to recognize, to know again. So the dog does not recognize itself and thinks it's another dog in the mirror. We look in a mirror and we see clearly that it's ourselves because we have the ability to self-reflect and we have self-consciousness. So to do other advanced forms of sentient beings mm-hmm. in the universe. Why do you say that we are not here? Is that a larger answer than you wanted? Um, <laughs> spiral dynamics. Why do you say we are not here to learn lessons but to evolve? Because there's nothing we have to learn, number one, any more than a, than a tree seedling has to learn anything, or even the, the, not forget the seedling, the seed itself. You know, there's a time when the tree is nothing more than a seed, no bigger than the fingernail on your on your little finger, and that's but yet everything that the tree needs to know to become the biggest tree in the forest 250 years old standing 75 feet tall etc as in the uh, as in the, the forest in california and the redwoods um, but the but the everything it needed to know it knew when it was a seed it was all encoded and so the tree hasn't learned anything the, no learning is involved merely expressing mm-hmm. what was encoded in the seed itself and the same is true about us. I mean, if God has made a tree that magnificent with all the encoding at the beginning, how do you imagine he's made us? So what's true is that we also have encoded within us from the very beginning all that we need to know to be fully and to express completely who we really are. And yet we have free will. Precisely. And the implication of free will is that we may choose not to express completely who we really are. Exactly. And, uh, and that choice would be made not uh, out of um, a desire to do something less, but out of lack of a complete remembrance of who we really are. That is, we don't know any better. Mm-hmm. Or as Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And, and of course, no truer statement was ever made. We, most of us do not remember who we really are 
or if we have a glimpse of it, we don't believe it. Again, it's too good to be true. So we reject it because our cultural story calls upon us to reject it. People who claim that who we really are is an aspect of divinity have been marginalized throughout human history. In fact, some of them have been actually crucified and put on a cross. And, and in other ways, they have been made to feel you know, that they are um, simply not part of the mainstream and that they should not be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. So we find ourselves listening to that cultural story and forgetting, even if we had a glimpse of it as children. See, when, when, when children come into life, they know. They don't, they don't have to be told or reminded of anything. They, as a seedling of, of a tree, they, they know perfectly well what's true about everything, including who they really are. But uh, they then step into a cultural story that takes that information about who they really are away from them step by step, moment by moment, information tidbit by information tidbit. We learn how to not be who we really are. In a sense, we unlearn ourselves. And then the, uh, the, the, the impulse to relearn or to, if you please, remember, that is to become a member once again of the body of God, the impulse to remember is very difficult to, um, to follow. It's hard to follow that impulse because everyone around us will marginalize us. I mean, the Bible says they will fall away on your right and they will fall away on your left, and indeed they will. And so you wind up standing alone you know, as, as a few people in human history have done, uh, whether it's Francis of Assisi or the Buddha or whoever it might be, people just stand alone by themselves because everyone else says, hey, hey, you're not following the cultural story. Who do you think you are anyway? You don't really think you're God, do you? Or even a part of God? And they actually string you up for that blasphemy. They mm-hmm. shout, apostasy, heresy. How can you dare claim such a thing? And that's the sad, saddest thing about the human experience, because claiming such a thing is precisely what God is inviting us to do. Mm. You have a very profound and compassionate view of love and fear as being opposite ends of the spectrum, to the extent that you even suggest that even the most heinous acts are, quote, distorted wailings of love, unquote. So... Why do you say that the worst crimes and behaviors of humans will never be forgiven by God? This is a leading question. (laughs) Because God has no reason to forgive. God has not been damaged, hurt, or destroyed uh, in any way. God no longer needs to forgive us for the most heinous crimes of human history. Then we need to forgive an 18-month-old child for knocking over the the milk at the kitchen table, you know, forgive a child for doing that. You simply understand. If, if a child, an 18-year-old child makes a mistake, uh, we, we don't say, well, I forgive you. <laughs> Forgiveness isn't part of the equation. We, we, we simply understand. And, and uh, as, uh, as beings in the universe go, sentient beings uh, in the cosmos, we are as a two-year-old little children. God perfectly well understands that we don't. That is, that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. And so God has neither a need to forgive us nor to punish us, and certainly not to condemn us to everlasting damnation. It's incomprehensible to me that we would actually embrace a deity who would say to you, I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. But if you do it the wrong way, 
if you do it, you know, in a way that feels really good in your soul, feels loving and kind and generous in your soul, but doesn't come through this particular needle, eye of the needle, you don't go through this particular passageway, then I will not only reject your love, but for worse than that, I will condemn you to everlasting damnation. You know, you will suffer in the fires of hell until the end of time. So all Jews are going to hell, all Hindus are going to hell, all Buddhists are going to hell, all Baha'is are going to hell, all Muslims are going to hell. Every, everyone, billions and billions of people throughout human history are going straight to hell. Not being denied God, but being actually punished with everlasting suffering, just unspeakable suffering. That's the kind of God that we want, that, that, that millions of us are, are telling the rest of us to believe in. At the same time saying that God is love. Yeah, and failing to see the, the contradiction, just, just in, you know, it's, it's only a, a primitive race of beings with a two-year-old mentality could conceive of a deity uh, who would experience or express such behaviors. Mm-hmm. What the world needs now is a civil rights movement for the soul, freeing humanity at last from its beliefs, you know, from the oppression of its beliefs, in a violent, angry, and vindictive God. Mm. So on our evolutionary path, we often are faced with pain and suffering. Is there no redemptive power in all that? Well, uh, we're, we're uh, suffering and pain are not the same thing, and it's not necessary to suffer simply because we are experiencing pain, as any mother who's given child, uh, birth to a child can tell you. I, I just had uh, that experience in my own life. My son's uh, wife, my daughter-in-law, just gave birth to a new grandson, and you know I was there for much of that process. And while she was in a great deal of pain, there was no suffering whatsoever. In fact, it was joy, actual joy, on her face hard as it might be to believe. She was saying things like, oh, well, this is really hurts. This really hurts. And then she was kind of laughing through it, saying, and Jude, who, who's the, the, the name she chose for her new son, Jude is on the way. And so <laughs> she was just so excited and so happy in the middle of the pain. Well, you know, it's that way with all of our pains. Every pain is really a birthing process. It's just an announcement that growth is occurring, that something's being born in us, through us, and as us. So, uh, yes, there are um, painful experiences in life. I'm not sure that they're redemptive, the word you used, that because there's nothing to redeem, so they're, they're not really redemptive. But I think that they are revelatory. That is, they reveal ourselves to us as who we really are. In that, pain is a sign of growth. And we grow from the pain into a grander and grander awareness mm-hmm. of our true identity. Most of us are walking around the world living a case of mistaken identity. We need to put Perry Mason on the case. (laughs) You talk about completion. How do we know that we've completed our soul's journey? And I find it very annoying that they keep moving the goalposts. (laughs) You wouldn't find it very annoying if you enjoy the experience of completion itself any more than you find it very annoying to make love with a person more than once in your life. It's really the same, uh, same experience. I'm happy to report that my wife and I make love with, with each other much more than once uh, in our lifetime. And we never get bored with the experience. We enjoy it fully and completely every time. 
So moving the goalpost is not really moving the goalpost in the sense that it's frustrating us, but rather it is giving us yet one more chance, one more opportunity, one more opportunity still to express an experience, to announce and to declare, to become and to fulfill ourselves completely as who we really are. God never gets bored with experiencing God's self or with experiencing divinity, if you please. Mm -hmm. Now, what does it feel like? Good question. The, the feeling of completion in the expression of divinity is, by the way, something that all of us have felt at least once in our lives. I've not met a, a person yet who hasn't felt it at least once. It feels totally blissful, totally joyful, a sense of total contentment, absolute contentment, and a sense of, now that's who I really am. Now that is who I really am. And, and that feeling can come over us. Maybe, as I said, maybe some of us have experienced it only once in a lifetime. Most of us exp- have experienced it more than that. But that experience comes over us when we show up in life in a particular way that says, you know what, that is all I have to give in that particular situation. I couldn't have been better than that if I tried. That is the complete and total me. Uh, I'll give you an example. Just It's a kind of a dramatic example, but it's a good one. I was driving down the road once, about 15 or 20, actually now it's about 30 years ago, and uh, it was late at night. I was driving down the road with a lady friend. We were out for a date for the evening. It was a country road, and I saw a, f- a flicker of light up ahead. I said, gee, I wonder what that is. As we got closer, we realized it was a car that was on fire on the side of the road, and the flames were shooting out from under the hood, under the front hood of this car. Worse yet, there was a man sitting inside, and he was clearly in shock. He was not moving, and you could almost see his eyes were glazed. And I I pulled off to the side of the road about 100 feet ahead of him, and I said to my lady friend, lean on the horn. Just just lean on the horn and don't don't let up. Somebody will come, or somebody will call for help. Because, of course, the, the fire was making no noise. Nobody in the neighborhood knew what was going on because there was no sound, just a quiet. But I, I felt certain that within moments that that car was going to blow up. So she leaned on the horn. She said, where are you going? I said, i got to get the guy out of the car. She said, oh, my God, you're going to die. You're going to kill yourself. I said, i got to get the guy out of the car. Lean on the horn. I raced over to the car, opened the door. This man had his hands around the steering wheel so tight. He was white-knuckled. I couldn't, I couldn't get him to let go of the car. He was saying, my car, my car, it's all I've got. It's all I've got. My car, oh, my God, oh, what's happening? I sla- finally slapped him in the face. I just, I had, I had no choice. I just slapped him awake. He looked up at me. He said, what, what, what? I said, and I, then I was able to pull him out of the car by his, by his lapel. I just grabbed him by the shirt front and jerked him out of that car. This man was three times my size. I want you to know. He was a very huge man. And I'm a very slim guy, but I pulled him out of there, and I got. And just then, here come the fire trucks, and I, I pulled him away. And he, he, then he wanted to open the hood, and, you know, and throw sand in the car to put the, and throw dirt in the car to, to put the fire out. I said, "Oh my God! Don't don't open the hood. You'll you'll give it more oxygen. It's going to blow up. Let's get out of here." And I pulled him away, and the fire truck came, and you know, all the rest. They put the thing out. They had their foam. They don't use, you know, they, they, and they they foamed the fire out. Great. I got an award about three weeks later, the mayor of the city in which I lived at that time, and the fire department gave me a little plaque. It just said, for conspicuous bravery in the face of imminent threat, the citizens of this city, thank you. 
You know, I, I don't tell that story to, to make me sound good. You know, everyone has had moments like that, whether it was just like that or some other way. You talk a person out of doing, doing bad things to themselves or you come up with just the right solution at just the right time or you stop someone from really you know, having a very, 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 very bad moment, whatever it might be. We've all had times in our life when we show up that way and then you sit down a minute later and you say, you know what, you know what, that's as best as I can be. That's, that's the fullest measure of who I am that I could give in that moment. That's it. That's who I really am. Mm. By the way, I want to say something to you. Most people think that the, that the basic survival is called survival. In the, I mean, I'm sorry, the basic instinct is survival. Most people think that our basic instinct is the survival instinct. In fact, it's not. The basic instinct is the expression of divinity. If survival were our basic instinct, we would run away from, not into the burning building. Mm -hmm. But we see the lady the, on the third floor holding her baby out the window, help, somebody please help me, and we run in, we don't run away. If survival were our basic instinct, we would never do that. Mm -hmm. But it's in moments like that when we really experience who we really are. And there are no questions asked. It's the fundamental instinct of humanity to express divinity. Yes, yes indeed. You point out in your book some other kind of common misunderstandings, uh, including our misunderstanding about unity consciousness and our misunderstanding about the law of attraction. Pick one. Well, I, I, th I think that, that our misunderstanding about the law of attraction uh, is that, you know, it's about attracting physicality, physical things in life. I'm, I'm very disappointed in the movie The Secret, even though I was in it, uh, but I did not know how it was going to end up when they when they when they uh, filmed my part, and I was in it for about 90 seconds. But uh, when I saw the whole film, I thought, "Gosh, this is really sad." Here's a movie that purports to tell us that using the law of attraction, we can attract any outcome that we choose in our lives. <clears throat> and as examples, they show a man walking out his front door, and there in the driveway is the car of his dreams. Uh, a woman uh, suddenly sees a, a, a diamond necklace uh, adorning her bodice. A boy, little boy, about seven years old, runs out the front door, and there's his gleaming, shiny new bicycle. And they, and they show all of these, you know, images of people realizing their life dreams, and, and but because they've used the law of attraction. Mm -hmm. And then when I when I watched the movie, I thought, gee whiz, if the law of attraction works that well, why don't we have world peace? Yeah. And why did they, why did they depict that? Yeah. So so you know it was very disappointed that also in the in the movie they didn't they didn't mention the word God until about two thirds more than two thirds seven eighths into the three minutes before the end of the film the word God was mentioned for the first time, almost as an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you know I I, I uh, had a very difficult time with all of this law of attraction stuff that talks about how you can attract anything you want in your life. You you probably can. You, you manipulating the energies of life uh, in the way that they are available to us to use, but why would we use them on things like that? So my problem with the law of attraction is there's no secondary manual that says, and let's use it to change the world's experience of itself. Indeed. So yeah. I, I think that um, what we don't understand is that the law of attraction is being used by us with uh, divinities cooperation that is it's a collaborative experience not a singular experience 
And what's misunderstood about the law of attraction is its ultimate purpose uh, and the ultimate goal of using it. If we understood that, we would be living like highly evolved beings uh, on this planet and everything would change overnight. And the ultimate goal in using it is? To produce a direct experience of who we really are. Mm-hmm. In, in our fullest expression. Yes, in completion. Mm-hmm. The complete experience of who we really are. And if we did that, there would be, if all of us on this planet did that, oh my goodness, forget about all of us. If even, even one-tenth of us on this planet did that, the whole world would change overnight. There would be no, nobody would be dying of starvation, much less 625 children a day. That's, that's obscene, and it's insane. There, there would be no poverty. There, there would be certainly no wars. North Korea right now wouldn't be threatening to, to uh, a unilateral preemptive strike on the United States, a nuclear strike, if you please. These things wouldn't occur. It, it, it would be impossible for them to occur if even one-tenth of the beings on this planet stepped into the fullness and the complete expression of their divinity. First thing we would make sure is that nobody needed anything. Can you imagine? It's, it's, to me, it seems utterly impossible that in a planet of, of such plenty, where there is plenteousness for everyone, and enough for everyone, by the way, we don't have, we don't have a lack of food. We do not have a lack of sufficient food on the planet, just to use one example. We simply have a lack of sufficient will to make sure that everybody gets some. It, 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 and when you, when you look at it from even a short distance, it's totally crazy-making. It, here, here's what's true about our planet right now. Nothing's working. The political system is not working at all. It is not producing the result for which it was designed. The economic system is not working at all. It's not producing the result for which it was designed. Our environmental systems are not working at all. Our educational systems are not working at all. Our social systems are not working at all. Our spiritual systems are not working at all. They are not producing, not in a single instance, the outcome for which they were designed. None of the systems we've put in place are producing the outcomes for which they were designed. Yet we continue to use them, demonstrating pure insanity, which, as we all know, is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting to get a different result. Someday we have to step to the plate just step up and say, you know what? We admit it. We acknowledge it. Nothing we have put into place is working. Do you think it's possible that there's something we don't fully understand here? The understanding of which would change everything? How is it possible for 7 billion people to all say they want the same thing and be unable to get it? That's the key question that humanity has to ask itself. Some world leader, the new pope, or somebody has to stand up and say, look, folks, can we admit to ourselves that this system is not working? 5% of the world's people hold or control 95% of the world's wealth and resources, and even they can't hold on to it and be happy? Do you suppose there's something we simply don't fully understand here? And if there might be, what do you think it could be? And are we willing to look at that? Or must we stumble forward like an inebriated person down a back alley, hoping we don't bounce into any more walls or fall on our face as we try to find our way back home. Mm. You give a number of tools for transformation in your book, and if I guess correctly, I would say that 
probably meditation is the tool that you think might might have the biggest impact on our lives? I think gratitude. Gratitude. Might, might, might be that. Meditation uh, is a very, very powerful tool. And in the book, I offer some various different ways to meditate, but I think the most single most powerful tool uh, of all, at least it, the most transformative tool in my life, has been the tool of gratitude. When I move into gratitude, in the face of any and every exterior circumstance, which would ordinarily discombobulate me, throw me off center, cause me to lose my peace and to surrender uh, my own serenity. Whenever those kinds of experiences occur in my life, I have found that if I move immediately and directly into gratitude, all the negative vibrations that that exterior experience might ordinarily have produced within me dissipate very quickly. And I move back into a place uh, of peacefulness, which is a place of pure creation. That is, I can then produce outcomes that I deeply desire, rather than finding myself having to endure whatever outcomes I, I think that the exterior circumstance needs must produce uh, in my reality. So that involves changing your perspective of what's happening, kind yes, of it, it, it zooming out and looking at it from a much broader perspective. All of that is explained in the book, When Everything Changes, Change Everything. Mm -hmm. That book talks about the mechanics of the mind and the system of the soul. It talks about how we create our own reality. And it talks, in fact, about how we can shift our perspective by shifting the place from which we are looking that is, by enlarging our consciousness, or if you please, as the book puts it, by moving from the mind to the soul in the observing of what is occurring. Mm -hmm. That's why I call the book, When Everything Changes, Change Everything. But Because when everything around your life is changing, maybe you've lost your life partner, uh, you've lost your job, you've lost your house, this, that, or the other thing is changing, things that you thought would always be the same are suddenly changing. It's time for us to change everything. That is to change our point of view, to change our perspective, to change our idea about change itself, to change our idea about life itself, to change our thought about who we actually are, to change our reality about why life is. Mm -hmm. Who are we? Where are we? And why are we where we are? And what do we intend to do about that? The four fundamental questions of life. When we change our answers to those questions, Everything interiorly changes, and the exterior changes no longer change us in negative ways. So one of the things we try to point out in that book, when everything changes, change everything, is how you can change the way change changes you. I've seen people really change their personalities because of changes that have occurred in their life in a negative way, and they don't have to do that. So between those two books, When Everything Changes, Change Everything, and The Only Thing That Matters, we hope to have given people the tools specifically that have been uh, d discussed in the Conversations with God cosmology. And you engage these on your website, um, which is... Yeah, people can find us at cwgportal.com. That is a gateway site that leads to a number of doorways 
through which people can move if they wish to get help with a spiritual or physical challenge they're facing in their life, get more information about how to use these tools. There's even a, a, a doorway that takes you to a school, what we call the School of the New Spirituality, or that provide uh, the tools with which to share these concepts with young people, children from the age of six and up. And there are other places that one can visit as well. So it's a wonderful gateway internet site. And the address again is cwgportal.com. Mm -hmm. And your personal website is linked from there? Yes. My, web, my personal website can be gotten to right from there, right through that portal. Or one can go to it directly by just going to neildonaldwalsh.com. At that site, we have uh, an opportunity to interact daily. I'm on the site almost every day talking to people back and forth in a section called the CWG Village. There's also a, an opportunity there to, for people to engage in uh, with a feature called Ask Neil, where they can ask me any question they want about the material. Uh, and there are many other ways to interact with us as well. CWG TV is another way where they get uh, video content uh, every, every week, brand new video content, 52 weeks a year. What we're trying to do here is to share with people in as many ways as we know how the wonderful, wonderful messages of conversations with God, which have touched the lives of nearly 15 million people in 37 languages in every country of the world. Neil, I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately, you don't have the time. So I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We've been speaking with Neil Donald Walsh, author of The Only Thing That Matters, and really one of the seminal figures in the modern conversation, The Great Awakening. Thank you for being with us, Neil. Thank you very much for asking me. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview, you'll find many more on our website, ncreview.com, along with summaries and reviews for thousands of new consciousness books and films. You'll also find a link there to our mobile app, as well as videos, events, author profiles, and blogs. That's all at ncreview.com, and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook under NC Review. Next week, our guest will be an amazing young man by the name of Jake Ducey, whose book, Into the Wind, describes his journey to connect with what is truly important in his life. And now we're going to close with our track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. With styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz, this growing group of musicians uses music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. This week we're featuring Never Too Late by Laurie Diamond, Fred Abatelli and the Angel Band.
to Love by Laurie Diamond and Fred Abatelli, whose meaningful music is designed to inspire, connect, expand, soothe, and uplift. To find out more about their music, go to lauriediamond.net. That's L-O-R-I-D-I-A-M-O-N-D.net. To discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today. I hope you'll join us next week and invite your friends. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.